Welcome everyone. We are continuing our study of Simha. We are in class number 27. Specifically, we started our subject of Emunah. As we've explained, it is not possible It is not possible for a person to achieve a real lasting simha without a very solid emunah. And our goal here is to really learn emunah from the bottom up, not just to take ideas and somehow put them together. That's usually what we've, most people do, is they learn some things in first grade and then some other things in second grade and then through different classes and they put together this kind of piecemeal emunah based on different things and it's important and I don't know that I'm the one capable of doing it but we're going to try it's important to go step by step from the beginning all the way to the top because any building that doesn't have a strong foundation is likely to fall or to at least shake. And our goal is to have it clear from the beginning. Today we're going to start with a very fundamental question, a few questions actually, that were asked by a great rabbi who was killed in the Holocaust, Rabbi Hanan Wasserman, Hashem Yikom Damo, a very great man. And in his book, Kovetz Ma'amarim, he asks a few questions about Emunah. The first one, he says that he doesn't understand how it's possible for Hashem to command us to have Emunah to believe in Hashem, to believe He's involved in our lives, to believe in the Torah. He doesn't understand how there can be a commandment to be ma'amin. Ani ma'amin That's a commandment. It's not a statement. He says, how is it that Hashem can command us to have emunah? He says, if the person already has emunah, so meaning if, if I trust you, so I trust you, I don't need to be commanded. And if I don't trust you, so then what does it help that someone commands me to trust you? I still don't trust you. So emunah is something that you have, either you have it or you don't. You could tell somebody to put on tefillin. You could tell somebody to sit in the sukkah. They don't have to want to do it, but they could do it regardless. But when it comes to having emunah, when it comes to having belief or trust, either you have it, however you got it, or you don't have it. Either way, commandments are not relevant. This is not my question. Again, this is the question of the Kovetz Ma'amarim, he also asks, 
He says, we know that the mitzvot that Hashem commanded us become our obligation at the age of 12 for a woman and 13 for a man. A 13-year-old boy, a 12-year-old girl are commanded in all the mitzvot age when they become mature, 12 or 13. Included in these mitzvot is the mitzvah of emunah. That means we expect a 12-year-old girl to have emunah in the fullest way. Also for a 13-year-old boy. Says Rabbi Hanan Wasim, I don't understand. You had some of the most brilliant philosophers in the history of mankind. One of them he names is Aristotle, who the Rambam himself says about him that he was a brilliant man. And even people like that have faltered and slipped in their emunah. So how do you expect a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old to be able to reach in emunah that even these great minds were not able to reach? How is that possible? It's not like emunah is something that you have to start when you, you, know, you get to when you're 60 or 70 or 80. It's not like that. He says, how could it be possible? That age doesn't have the experience, doesn't have the knowledge, the maturity, to be able to say they have a rock-solid emunah? That's question number two that he asks. I think some beautiful questions. A third question that he asks. The Torah says, we read it every day at the end of Shema, Velo taturu ahare levavchem. Torah commands us not to follow our heart. When we say the word heart in Hebrew, we're talking about the emotions of the person. There's the knowledge, the sechel. Then we talk about the emotional part of the person. Says the Torah, do not follow your heart. Which means that your heart could be misleading. Many people believe they always have to go with their heart or their intuition. It's not true. It's a terrible mistake. Sometimes there is room for that, but it has to be based on logic and sechel and mind. Says the Torah, be careful. Do not follow your heart. Do not follow your emotions. Now, what exactly is the nature of this commandment? Right now, as I say it to you, I don't even know what I'm saying. I don't know if you know what you're listening to. What does that mean? Don't follow your heart. Exactly when would I be guilty of this commandment? So Baruch Hashem, we have Hazal that open our eyes. And Hazal tell us, Zo Minut. Minut means a person who is a kofer. A person who denies the fundamentals of emunah. That's called minut, a min. Like we say in the Beracha, lam minim ve lam malshinim. The word min is referring to a person who's a kofer. A kofer is one who denies the fundamentals and truths of emunah. So what does it mean when the Torah tells me, don't follow my heart? It means don't be a min, don't be a kofer. Do not deny 
the fundamentals of emuna. Says Rabbi Wasserman, Alava Shalom. He says, How could it be that when we command someone to have emuna, we're talking to his lev, we're talking to his heart, we're talking to his emotions? If somebody was standing in front of me who didn't have emuna, would I talk to his heart or would I talk to his mind? Would I try to explain to him why he's off? Why he's making the wrong calculation? Why his logic is not there? Why he's missing information? We would talk to the person's mind. How would you connect to a person who is lacking faith? You would talk to his brain. He's missing information. So when the Torah tells us not to be a kofir, it talks to our hearts. Do not follow your heart. That doesn't make sense. It should say, do not follow your mind, your twisted mind. It should not, you should not follow your, 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 your foolishness that comes from your mind. Educate yourself. Go learn. Why does the Torah say, what does the lev have to do with this? I forgot to mention in the middle of class, in the beginning of class, that this class has been generously sponsored in memory of Arlene Braha, Chana Bat Le'ah, by her family. Ruach Hashem, Tenehaina Began Aiden, Amen. So that's question so far, number three. Those are his questions. We're going to add another question, a fourth question. He didn't ask this question. The Lev Eliyahu asked this question. In order to understand the question, I have to read with you a pasuk in Yeshaya. It's one of, in one of the more famous haftarot. The Navi Yeshaya gets up and says, in the name of God, that's his job as a prophet. So, he, so Hashem is speaking. Banim, he tells Am Yisrael, he's not so happy with their lifestyle or whatever they're doing. He says to them like this, Banim gidalti veromanti. I raised children, I brought them up. Vehem pash obi. Yet they come and they rebel against me. I'm sure there are many parents who can appreciate this on some level. You raise a child, you give him everything, you... You put your life and everything into him, and then all of a sudden, he looks at you like you're the enemy. Hashem feels that way. He says, I raised this nation, I brought them up, yet their actions show a whole different story. Vehem pashobi. Now listen to this. He says, in the same pasuk, he says, Yada shor konehu. A an ox knows his owner. That's the same pasuk, the same parasha. An ox knows his owner. He's saying even an ox knows his owner. 
Vahamor, and even a donkey, Ebus Be'alav, he may not be as sharp as the shore, but even a Hamor who doesn't know his owner, but he at least knows where his food comes from. He knows where to eat. Yisrael lo yada. He says, my nation, Yisrael, they don't know. They're worse than a shor. They're lower than a hamor. Ami lo hitbonan. So basically, the pasuk is saying that there is a shock over here, a kalvahomer of some sort, that if even a shor can know his owner, and even a hamor could know where his sustenance comes from, you, I'm Yisrael, you don't know? Could you be that you're less, less than a shor and less than a hamor? How could it be? Lebeliyahu says, wait, wait, time out. This is no comparison. What kind of comparison is this? To compare a human to a shor and a hamor? Not fair. He says, a shor, he, by nature, knows his owner. That's the way God made him. A hamor, in his nature, he knows where his food comes from. He didn't go to school for that. He didn't make a decision for that. It's within his nature of creation. Every shor knows his owner. Every hamor knows where his food is. How could you compare that to a human, to a Jew, who is making a decision, maybe the wrong decision, but it's still his decision, it's not within his nature. So how could that be a question? Hashem says, even a shor does the right thing. Really? The shor is making that choice? Of course not. Even a hamor is doing the right thing. What do you mean? That's not the hamor. That's Hashem making the choice for him. Whereas a Jew has to work to get there. How could that be used against us? You want to say we're doing the wrong thing? Say it. But don't compare me to a hamor. Don't compare me to a shor. That's not a fair comparison. And if God is talking, that means there's some reality to this, but we're not understanding it. Four questions. I think very fundamental questions. First, I'm going to tell you what the Lev Eliyahu says, and then we're going to go into more in depth of the Kovetz Ma'amarim. The Lev Eliyahu is a beautiful thing. Again, very simple information, but very well put together. And we have to hear it just in the way he says it. You know, the Havot Levavot, in Shara Behina, he writes that one of the things that should capture the eyes of every human is how, how Hashem made the world with such, such a seder, such order, that we see that humans have many needs, we have to eat, and we have to drink, and we have to breathe. We need oxygen, we need clothing, we need wool, we need all types of materials, leather, 
Humans need a lot of different things in order to survive and to survive well. Says the Havot Levavot, if you look around the world, you will see an amazing thing. That the more essential something is for a human, the easier it is found and the more there is of it. So for example, he says, the one thing we need more than anything else and we can't go a minute without it is oxygen. So oxygen, Hashem didn't make it something that people would buy and sell. Because then we would be in trouble. It's not going to work. Hashem didn't make oxygen only available by the ocean. Where you have to have you know, an oceanfront property to be able to breathe. It doesn't work like that. Then nobody could live. So where is oxygen? How much oxygen is going to be in the world? Answer is... It's everywhere. Anywhere you go on this planet, you're going to find oxygen. And it's free. Because humans cannot really go any more than a minute or two without oxygen. Water. We also need water. But water isn't around and not as much quantity like oxygen. There are places, Hashem put pools, some big pools, some little pools all over the world. There are lakes and springs and oceans and wells and all types of bodies of water that Hashem placed all over the world that can supply water to humanity. It's not like air. And in fact, some people even sell water. That's the Hidush of the last century. Nobody ever dreamed that you could sell water. But they do it. But even though water isn't as easy to find as oxygen and it isn't as close to you and the same quantities, but it's enough because humanity doesn't need to drink water every second. So you can have them spread around, just go get them, store them, drink them. Then you have food. is also needs a lot of work. You don't need a lot of work to get oxygen. Hashem made it for you. Hashem didn't make it that we have to work to get oxygen because we can't survive like that. We have to work a little to get water. We have to work a lot to get food. You're going to have to plow. You're going to have to plant. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to cook. You're going to have to do a lot of things to get food into your mouth. But it's okay because you can go a few hours without food. It's okay. So, and he goes on to explain wool, for example. Hashem put all these wool factories all around the world. All the sheep in the world, they're all in different places. You don't find wool everywhere you go. But you don't need wool everywhere you go. And so on and so forth. You get the idea. So you see something beautiful. That the more essential something is, then Hashem will give it to you more available and without having to work too hard. Says the Lev Eliyahu, as we've discussed many times in this class, that the physical world very much is a mashal, is a parable to the spiritual world. Hashem gave us a physical world that we could learn from it a lot about our spiritual side. 
And just like he created a body that has many different types of needs, and there are many things in the physical world that could poison the body, so too the soul also has many needs. And also the soul has different poison that can affect it. What is the food for the soul? The Jewish soul has a requirement for a special diet, just like the Jewish body. The food, the mazon for our neshama is mitzvot, is chesed, is tefillah. These are all part of our mazon. Our neshama needs Shabbat once a week. Also by mitzvot, by the way, it works that way. The ones that we need more essentially, Hashem gives more. So Pesach, I need once a year. My soul needs Pesach once a year. Seven days, eight days. We need Sukkot once a year. We need Shabbat once a week. We cannot go two weeks without Shabbat. We need Shabbat every week. That's what our Neshama needs. We need Tefillah every single day. We need Shema. Men have certain needs more than women. So Hashem gave us the right amount for who we are and what we need as our neshamot are thirsty and hungry. So the mazon of our souls is the mitzvot. The poison of our souls is a person could eat a lot physically, but one piece of poison could destroy everything. Poison of our soul is the abirot, or the bad things that we should not be doing. When Hashem says, don't do this, it means, hey, that's poison to your soul. Don't do that. So we now know what the mazon is, what the food of our soul is, and what the poison of our soul is. Says the level and what's the oxygen of the soul? What is the soul need so essential that you need it every single moment. You can't live without it. The air, the oxygen that the soul needs is emunah. Emunah is our oxygen. Says the level just like oxygen is readily available to everyone you don't have to work to get oxygen. You don't have to travel to get oxygen. It's there. Because whatever is more essential, Hashem gives it to you. There's no choice. Emunah is that oxygen for the soul. And therefore, emunah is as natural and available to our soul as our breathing. You don't have to acquire oxygen. You don't have to acquire emunah. Haydush. One might have said, what do you mean? Emunah, I got to go to school. I got to open the books. I got to study. Which, by the way, always helps. It's always good to know. But if you take our neshama in its simple form, 
it already has emunah. And that's why the comparison to a shor and a hamor, it is a good comparison. The same way a shor and a hamor were created with natural ways of being, they know their owner, they know where their food is, Yisrael has emuna. Every single one of us is created with a natural emuna. Sometimes, by the way, if you look good, sometimes you see it by little children who don't really know anything. They don't understand anything. But they have like this natural emuna. It's hard to explain. I've met people in my life. In fact, I met one last week that is so off the derech you wouldn't even know how to get him back into the right place. Yet, speaking to him, I was trying to help him, you realize the guy has emuna. I would ask him questions, so why do you do this? Certain things that they do, the truth, I don't know. I can't explain it. I just, I don't know. I, I don't feel right if I don't do that. So why don't you do this? This is a person who's totally disconnected. Emuna is the natural state of our neshama. You don't have to learn about it. You don't have to acquire it. You don't need to go to learn philosophy. Not necessary. You're born, you have emuna. Like a shor and a hamor. That's why Abraham Avinu was able to reach this knowledge even as a young age. Hazal tell us he was a young boy. As young as three years old. Some say he was ten, whatever it was. But how did he get it? What do you mean? Emunah is simple. A person knows his creator. That's how it is. You know, this is an interesting Gemara. Just a little side point. The Gemara over there, I can't give you all the details. It's too complicated. But the Gemara... In Bhavatra says there was once a story where a man died and he left ten children, but only one of them was his real son. And neither he or his children knew who were the real father and who the real sons. Okay, it's a weird story. I'm not gonna go into it now. But that was the reality. Father died, looks like he had a lot of money too. And he had these ten kids, right? All of them thought they were his son. But both the father and the kids knew that he was the that there was only one of these ten that was his real son, which means that only one really is going to get the Yerusha. So when he died, he told his children, "Listen, only one of you is my son. I want my Yerusha to go to my son." Now, how are they going to know who is the one? They themselves don't know. So the Gemara says that he, they went to a great rabbi, his name was Rabbi Bana'a. That was the rabbi they went to. And um, they went to him to see what they should do. What do they do with all the property, all the money? Each one says, oh, I think I'm the son. Each one felt like he was the son. Who could blame them? Could you imagine you get that news after 70 years of being here? Your father's daughter or your father's son, that one of you is not really. Here, nine of them went out. Each one thought, well, yeah, I'm the guy. Of course, I'm the guy. So Rabbi Bana'a told them, listen to this interesting advice he gave them. 
He says, I want each of you to take a bat, go to your father's grave, start hitting his grave as hard as you can, and you'll get the answer. Anyway, these guys thought, okay, this was the rabbi knows what he's talking about. They figured that after they hit with the bat, each kid, the father's going to come out and tell him the truth. I guess he didn't know when he was here, but now he knows. They went. They all went to hit him with the bat. They hit Imagine you go to the, to the, what a sight. You see all the kids with the bats, and they're swinging on, on, on their father's kid. Nice, Anyway, after all that, nothing happened. Nobody came out. No voice came from heaven. Nothing. Zero. They went back to Rabbi Banah as a rabbi. We went to hit our father. Nothing happened. He says like this. He says, okay. He says, I hear you. He says, did you all go? Did you all go? Why don't I make sure you all went? They said, we went. Except for one. One boy didn't go. He told him, how come you didn't go? He says, I you don't forget the money, I can't hit my father. I can't hit my father. He says, that's the boy. So here's a story. It's a story. It's a story of ten children that none of them intellectually knew who their father was. But somehow... Somehow you just know who your father is. You can't prove it. You can't you just know it. All the more so. All the more so. You know, our father and our mother is just a middle man. They're middle people. The real father, the real mother is the creator of the world. He's way more our father than our parents. He's way more our mother so clearly, if a human has this natural feel for who his real father is, how much more so does a person have this natural feel that he has a creator who is watching over him, who's taking care of him? It's natural. Now you might be asking, so, so then how come... There are people who are lacking emunah. Clearly, there are people lacking emunah. And those people are probably sitting in this room. When we say lacking emunah, emunah is not a one-stop shop. Emunah has many levels to it. A person can have, God forbid, no emunah, or they could have 1% emunah, 10%. Our observance of what we do in our lives very much depends how much emunah we have. So clearly, we have emunah struggles. Why, if it's natural, if it's like oxygen, so why would anyone struggle with emunah? Where is the answer to the question? The Torah says, a very interesting rule in life. 
כי השוחד יעוור עיני חכמים. You have a wise person who sees very clearly, very logical person, yet, says the Torah, if that person takes a bribe, so he no longer is able to see clearly with his mind. He sees things a little bit different because of the bribe. Now, when we speak about a bribe, we don't mean that someone came to him and said, listen, I want you to side with me, so I'm giving you money. Make sure I win the case. That's not what we're talking about. That's sheker. That's not even a bribe. That's you're lying. When we speak about a bribe, we're talking about a person who goes to a judge and tells the judge, listen, I want you to judge fair. I don't want any special treatment, but I do appreciate everything you do and how much time you're spending with us, and here's a small gift. The Torah says that judge is disqualified. Even if that judge would be Moshe Rabbeinu, disqualified. Why? But he's not a shakran, he's not a liar, and the person didn't ask him to lie. The Torah says there's, a, there's something fundamental that we must learn about ourselves and the way we think. And that is, when we have a negi'ut, means when we have an agenda, if a person has an agenda, then the agenda will warp his thinking and will mix up his mind. So even though he's capable of knowing what's the right thing in this case, the judge who has a shohad somehow will always be attracted to the person that gave him the gift. That person will sound better, it'll make more sense, and he will swear up and down that that person is right. He believes it. But he may not realize that somewhere in his subconscious, it's his agenda, because he loves the guy, and he takes care of him, that is causing him to see things the way he's seeing them. That's the rule. You have to know that rule. Ki hachamim. You could be the wisest, purest, most beautiful person, but if you got a bribe, you automatically have an agenda. The agenda is you love that person. He does you favors. He takes care of you. The Gemara gives stories of great people that when somebody came to them to get a fair judgment, they said, I'm sorry, I'm disqualified. You did me that favor. You, rent, you gave me your house for the weekend. You, I love you so much, I can't, I'm going to see it your way. They weren't going to go and lie, but they were admitting that once there's an agenda, it is not possible for a person to know that they're saying the right thing or thinking the right thing. Says... The great Rabbi Khan Wasserman, 
that this is the struggle of emunah. Emunah is natural. Yes, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old has it. So where is the issue? Where is the challenge? Remember that question we asked? Velo taturu ahare levavchem. The issue is not your mind. The issue is not that you don't have enough information. Again, the more information, the better to solidify yourself when you have the waves of your lev coming at you. But where does kefirah come from? If a person is lacking emunah, where does it come from? It's coming from his lev. It's coming from his agenda. It's coming from his desires. It's coming because he wants to do whatever he wants. He's not interested in having any boundaries. He doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. He wants to be loose and free. And that agenda, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to have a completely free life when nobody tells you what to do, you go to sleep whenever you want, you wake up whenever you want, you eat whatever you want, you wear whatever you want, you basically do whatever you want. Who doesn't like to do what they want? We all do. We love to do what we want. We don't like being told what to do. Sometimes there's no choice. It's part of life. We don't like it. That's called an agenda. All of us have an agenda. It's the agenda of the live. It's the agenda of wanting certain things. So now, what happens to us? What happens? This agenda bribes us. It's really a natural fit. Emunah is a natural fit. You don't have to know anything. The problem is you have the waves of agenda fighting your emunah. So you say, you know what? There's really no creator. You know why? Because you don't want there to be a creator. Because if there's a creator, then maybe the creator has a purpose to life. And maybe you have to start changing certain things about the way you live. Ooh, that's scary. Who does? I don't want that. Who likes to change? Nobody. Even the best changes, it's hard for us to make. That's an agenda. I don't want there to be this halakha. And therefore, I make believe there isn't. I don't want that Hashem should be watching me. So therefore, He isn't. The agenda actually decides what our mind is thinking. Take away the agenda, you have a natural fit. Says the Torah, be careful. Do not follow your agendas. Be honest. Don't be blinded. All the questions are answered. Emunah, you don't have to be commanded to have emunah. We already have emunah when we're born. But the commandment of emunah is be careful of the waves of agenda. Be careful that your emunah stays strong even though your heart 
may want something else. The Rambam writes, how a person, how can a person develop his love for Hashem? We have a mitzvah, to love Hashem. Says the Rambam, how do you do that? How do you increase your love for Hashem? Says the Rambam, the way they do it, he says, start to study the nature and the creation of the world. You'll see the amazing wonders that are out there. And that's endless. That study is never ending. He says, and when that happens, he says, Miyad, the words of the Rambam, Miyad means immediately. If you start opening your eyes and seeing Hashem's Involvement in Hashem's creations. Miyad, he says immediately. Who Oheb, he starts to love Hashem. Meshabeah, he starts to praise Hashem. Mefa'er, Hashem. He wants to get closer to Hashem. Unbelievable. What a, what a promise. If you didn't live on this planet and you saw this Rambam, you'd say, wow, what a beauty. It's easy. To love Hashem. Gorgeous. Go out there. Open up your eyes. See the oranges on your table. See the grapes that are growing on the trees. See the beautiful flowers. See the trees. See all the miracles out there. There are too many to count. And what's going to happen to you? Miyad. Miyad means as you open your eyes, you're going to start to fall in love with Hashem. And you're not going to... How do I say thank you? What can I do for you? When someone gives you Life, you'll do anything for them. And that's what you feel like every moment. Beautiful. Like I said, if I didn't live on the planet and I saw this Rambam, I would say this is easy. This Emunah thing is a piece of cake. Just have to open my eyes. Simple. It would come out according to this Rambam. That every scientist in the world should be the biggest lover of Hashem. Because scientists are people who learn more about the creation than we do. That's what they do all day long. So a person who is involved in science and sees the details of the creation, even more than an average person, that person, according to the Rambam, if he made the formula, he would be on the highest level of emunah and ahavat Hashem. And then you come down to this planet, you land... And you start looking for the scientist who needs rabbis. You go to the scientist. Because they're the ones who love Hashem the most. And you get shocked. Because you have all these scientists, not all of them, but many scientists, are total atheists. They have no emunah. And you say, one second, Rambam, what happened to you? Didn't you say that someone who does this Miyad is going to have emunah and love for Hashem. And yet when you look on the ground, it's a whole different story. It's a whole different picture. How do you explain that? There's a story that's written in the books
I'm sure it never happened, this story. But it happens every day. But a man who was visiting a very prestigious art museum. He himself was a very hashuv person. So everyone's following him in the museum to see his reactions to different beautiful paintings they have. Some of the most beautiful art in the entire world is there. And he walks in, he has all the press around him, and they all have cameras on him. People learn, you know, his every move, his every reaction. Where is he going to wow? Where is he going to go, whoa? And they take him to the first beautiful painting. And he looks and he says, What's all that yogurt? Very surprised. This guy's a genius. He's, he saw yogurt on it, on this painting. What yogurt? But I guess he saw. He could see. He went to the second picture. Again, he says, "More yogurt." Everyone's like, "What? What? What's going on, this guy?" After the third time, made the same comment. One guy goes over to him and says, "So, can you give me one second? Could you give me your glasses?" Looks at his glasses. Oh, yogurt. There's yogurt on his glasses. If you have yogurt on your glasses, no matter what you see, there's yogurt. That's a real play-by-play of our lives. We walk around with glasses, and on those glasses we have things that we want. And everything we see through those glasses. So it doesn't really matter how beautiful the piece is. Because you're going to see what you want to see. I don't know if there's a better explanation to why this Rambam doesn't work than this story. We ask, the Rambam says, Miyad, right away. You're going to love Hashem. You're going to have em-. Yeah, if you take off your glasses. If you walk around this world, and if you're a scientist and you're the last thing you want is that there's a creator in the world that's going to give you directions, then you have your glasses on and everything that's supposed to get you closer can actually bring you further. It's one of the miracles in life. Actually, some explain that's what David Melech meant when he said the following words in Mizmor Shir Yom Shabbat. The Pasuk says, Ma gadlu ma'asecha Hashem. David Melech is one who did what the Rambam says. He looks around the world and he sees, wow, what a world. Whoa, look at this world. Look how gorgeous. Look how mesudar, how orderly. Look at this beautiful world, amazing. How great! Says, Yet your thoughts are very deep. Very deep means we can't understand it. What is it that we can't understand? Next pasuk. How could a man who has a sechel look at this world? And lo yada, he doesn't know you. 
How could a human being, can I ask you a question? If I tried, what would I have to do to convince you that this table happened and was created and manufactured by accident in the storm that happened in Hurricane Sandy a few years ago? Very big storm. All the materials were in the garbage can. And after the storm, I saw this table. What would I have to do to convince you that this table just happened by itself? I probably couldn't do it. And I can convince you a lot of things, but not this one. What would I have to convince you that this building, you weren't around, most of you were not around here when this building went up. And even if you were around, you didn't see what would it look like here on 2030 Ocean Parkway. But I know I was here and I'm telling you, one day we came here, there was a big hole. The next day we came, there was a building. It was unbelievable. Just a beautiful building. It's just how it came together miraculously. I mean, glass was blowing from one direction. Metal was blowing in the other direction. Mahogany wood came from the other place. And all came together. It was just, what can I tell you? It was breathtaking. Okay, what would I have to do to convince you something? You would not be able to get that by anybody. The little child will never believe you. Yet people can walk around this beautiful planet and say that it happened accidentally. What? what? How could that be? What, what? That's what it means. Me'od Hashem, how you made a human being look straight in the face and see you, and yet at the same time says, Lo yada, I don't know. Lo zot, I have no idea. I don't see God. What, how could that be? That's one of the questions. That means I can't understand how I can't convince people this table was made by itself, but you were able to convince them the entire world is made by itself. How you did that, I don't know. That's part of free choice. One of the more amazing things about the creation is that people can actually believe that there's no creator. That's an amazing thing. And what is the tool that Hashem uses for that? To lack emunah? What's the tool? Now again, I told you many times, emunah has levels. You can deny a creator, or you could be smart enough to know that. But you can deny other things. We all have struggles in emunah. Does it really matter what I eat? Does it really matter what I say? Does it really matter what I wear? Does it really matter where I go? Does it really matter what... We have many levels of emunah. And what is the miracle of emunah? The miracle of emunah is that Hashem can blind you not to have emunah, even though it's clear as day. And what is the tool that Hashem uses? The yogurt glasses. What's the yogurt? Your agenda. Your agenda and my agenda are the glasses that we see the world. Those lenses have some issues in them. I don't know if there's a greater story to share with you on this subject than what happened on April 12th of 1961. That day was the day where the first person to travel outside of the planet Earth. That day, a Russian cosmonaut 
actually left the planet and was right outside the planet in space. It's an amazing moment for the planet and its inhabitants. The Russian premier, this is an important person. I assume he had also a sechel. You don't become premier without having some knowledge, some smart way about you. He gets up in front of the entire world, celebrating this moment. And he says, I am happy to report, I don't know if I'm happy, but I am here to report that our cosmonaut has proven that there is no God. Because he didn't see him when he went up to space. That Would you believe that some intelligent human being could say, forget, forget emunah, forget anything, that an intelligent person can make such a stupid comment? First of all, we know that God is not physical, it's spiritual. But let's, you know what? Let's go into his small-minded understanding of God. Okay, God is physical, let's say. So, you left the planet Earth. You, a few miles outside the planet. You took a tour around the planet. And you didn't find them. It's like saying that I couldn't find John because I went around my block. I know he lives somewhere in the United States, but he's not here because I went around the block. I didn't see him. What are you talking about? You know how big the world is? Don't you see how big space is? The first person that should see that is the guy in space. Look, look how big this world is. Because you didn't find him? That proves he's not there? What do you think? He was waiting for you where you wanted to go? Like, what, what, what are you saying? It's, it's such a, this is a very hashuv person in front of the entire planet. What's on his mind? He's proven there's no God. Answer is, he's a communist. And in those days, that was their agenda. I don't know what their latest agenda is, but that was one of their agendas. And he proved it. Compare that, compare that to the Apollo 8 mission seven, eight years later when the first Americans stepped on the moon. Maybe it wasn't the Apollo, I don't know what name it was. Don't quote me on that. But Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were the first people to step on the moon. And when they asked Aldrin, so tell us, how did you feel when you're stepping on the moon? What does that feel like? He says, and I quote, personally, in reflecting on the events of the past several days, a verse from Tehillim comes to mind. Pasuk says, Ki er When I see the skies, Ma'ase 
the work of your fingers. Yareyah vechochavim, the stars and the and the and the moon asher kunanta. Ma enosh kitiskerenu. What is man that you're mindful of him? Meaning, such a big world that you made. Who are we? We're so small. So the question is, when you walk into outer space, does that bring you closer to God or further from God? Is that a reason to have more emunah or less emunah? You have two opposite stories. One guy comes and says, oh, there's no creator. One guy says, oh, look, it reminds me of the creator more than ever. The answer is, what glasses do you have on? Tell me your glasses, I'll tell you what you're going to see. That's called Shohan. Who is at risk of Shohan, of an agenda that could skew his mind? The answer is everybody. When we have an agenda, we start to think of ideas to back up our agenda. Let me give you an example. We just celebrated Pesach. We read the story of the Arba'a Banim. One of them doesn't ask a question at all. We're not going to address him. But the other three, they ask questions. And you should know, in the Torah, excuse me, there are four different children that the Pasuk says to us to address them when it comes to the night of Pesach. That's where the four banim come from. There are four places in the Torah. The Torah tells us how to deal with our children at the night of Pesach. So the Bala Gada is just trying to, when he says, Mahu Omer, he means to say, which one of the Pesukim in the Torah is the Rasha? Which one is the Hacham? Which one is the one that's simple? Mahu Omer means, which one of the Pesukim in the Torah is the one that he said? So She'eno Yedaya Lishal is the easy one. That's the one where there was no question in the Torah. It says, No questions. You tell your son. That's to the boy who doesn't ask. The simple boy, the Torah says, he asks, Mazot. That's the extent of his knowledge. Mazot. Not very deep. What is this? He can't even express the question. That's the time. Now come the Hacham and the Rasha. The Hacham, Mahu Omer. What is. Who is the Hacham? He asks, Ma ha'edot ve'ahukim ve'amishpatim. And who is the Rasha? The Rasha is the one who says, Ma ha'avodah hazot lachem. What are you guys doing? What is this work that you're doing? Korban Pesach? What are you, Matzot? What are you doing? Now it seems the questions are very similar. Both of them really asking, what are you doing? But look in the Torah and you'll see some brilliancy in the way the Torah breaks down the question. Watch. When it comes to the Hacham, the Torah says, Ki yish'alecha bincha mahar lemor. 
Pay attention to these words. Kish alecha means when your son will ask you mahar tomorrow. By the Rasha, it says vehaya ki yomru alechem benechem. When your children will tell you maha avoda, what are you doing? When it comes to the hacham, it's a question that he's asking, and it's tomorrow. When it comes to the Rasha, he says, Yomru. There's no question. But, but he asked the question. Why don't we say, when he asks you? Because the Rasha is asking a question with a question mark, but in reality, his question is just an excuse for his behavior. Sometimes people ask questions because they want to know. Like the hacham. Ki yish'alecha. I want to know. And when does he ask, by the way? Mahar. What's mahar? Means, he's telling you, I'm not lazy. I'm willing to do the Pesach with you now. But I don't understand it. Tomorrow, could you explain it to me? But I'm willing to do it if it's the right thing. And I'll do it just to show you that. But tomorrow, I want to ask you about it. That's called sincere. But the, the Rasha is not asking tomorrow. He's sitting by the seder and he's saying, what are you guys doing? What is this? Now it sounds like a question, but the Torah says it's not a question. It's Yomru. Yomru means it's a statement. He's giving you an answer. He's trying to answer his behavior. A beautiful story. A beautiful story. It happened about 100, over 100 years ago. There's a great rabbi in Europe, of Chaim from Brisk, Chaim Salvechik, Allah Shalom. He was a rabbi in a city called Brisk, and he had a yeshiva. And there was a student that was in the yeshiva who went off to Derech Lo'alim, and he moved to a different town. And the guy became totally disconnected from Judaism. Happens to be, one day, his rabbi, the Rosh Yeshiva, came to visit that town that he's living. So when he heard the Rosh Yeshiva came after many years, he said, well, go see him. He goes to visit the Rosh Yeshiva and he says, Rosh Yeshiva, I'm very happy to see you. He says, you know, there's a question that's been bothering me and I'd like to know if you could help me get the answer. A question that I have about Judaism. So the rabbi says, now if it was me, if that was me, I would have jumped to answer that question. Imagine Here's a guy off the derech. He's coming to ask a question. This could be his life savior. I would have said, okay, tell me. Tell me, yes, what's your question? So if Chaim says, I'm sorry, I can't answer your question. You first have to answer my question, and then I'll decide if I can answer your question. He says, well, Rabbi, what question do you have? He says, I want to know when did you develop this question? Was it before your Mehalal Shabbat or after your Mehalal Shabbat? He said, if the question was before your Mehalal Shabbat, so it's a question, a question, I can give you an answer. But if the question that you have arrived at your knowledge after your Mehalal Shabbat, so then your question is not a question. Your question is a statement. He said, I can't give an answer to a statement. 
And that's what happens very many times in our lives. Where we find ourselves asking questions or other people asking questions, but it's not a question. They're just knocking. They're just giving an answer. It's called a tirutz. They're trying to answer their lifestyle. They're trying to answer why they do what they do. And it makes sense. Nobody wants to live feeling like they're acting in a silly or in a way that doesn't make sense. Or Everyone wants to feel like they're doing the right thing. That's what the agenda does for us. And like I mentioned, who is... Who needs to be careful on this? The greatest people. Look look at the story. I don't know if there's a better story than this. Remember, we're talking about great people now. We're talking about great people. It's really, it's not for us to come and comment on this, but Torah wrote it for us. We have to read it. But we have to know with a grain of salt, there's so much more to it than this. But the story of Yosef and his brothers is a mystery. It's a regular mystery. How it could be that this man, Yosef, who was their brother, they didn't leave him when he was three. He was 17. Yes, our rabbis say he was 17. He didn't have a beard yet. Now he's 30. The difference between 17 and 30 in the way a person looks, not so much. He didn't get plastic surgery. And Hazal tell us, he looked like Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov had a beard. How could it be that they didn't recognize this man that he was their brother? And then consider all the things that took place. First of all, they come in and already he's giving them problems. He tells them, you are spies. And then after he tells them that they're spies, or he suspects them of being his spy. He says, how's your family doing? He's worried about them. And he sends them back home to give them food. Let me ask you, if you had spies, 10 spies coming to your country, would you send them back home? You're worried about their family? So send, get the address. Where are you? What number? Where, Ocean Park, where, where, in Cairo, where, where are you? Oh, you're in Canaan. Get the address and ship them the goods. You're going to send back 10 spies? That you're considering them a danger to your country? You're sending them back? What are you doing? How could they not see right through it? So many questions. Has your father, then he wants to see Benjamin. Then all of a sudden they come back. They, they're going, they see the money. The money they paid is back in their pocketbooks. Does that ever happen to you? And then when they ask the guy on the way back, by the way, we saw our money. I don't know what happened. We paid, but then the money, we found it. He tells them, the money came to me, don't worry. Your God and the God of your fathers must have given it to you. Does that regular happen in Egypt like that? Where you just have money in your pocket just by accident? And then he brings them back to his house on the second time? And they eat with the Mishnah Lamelech? Is that how you treat suspicious people? You bring them to your palace? 
You think that's what people who are scared, they're going to get murdered by the other country, they're going to bring them into their home to show them around where they live and how they eat and what's going on? And then he seats them, each one according to his age, according to who his mother was. And then it says, come eat with me. Hazal say, he said, I slaughter shahita. I, I have regular kosher meat for you. Regular Egyptians eat meat. What's going on here? And then they find the goblet in Abiyamin. It says, Hazal tell us, even when Yosef says, Ani Yosef, even then they didn't believe him. How could it be? It's so obvious. You read the story and say, come on. What were they? Walking around with blindfolds? Answer is yes. The blindfold was the yogurt because they made a decision 13 years before that that Yosef is a bad guy and he's trying to run after them and kill them. And his dreams that he's going to be the melech is all part of his ego. And they were so convinced that this man was doing the wrong thing that they were actually judged him. They judged him to die. They believed in what they believed. So therefore, when they were in Mitzrayim, the last thing on their agenda is that Yosef would really be the king. That's, that's impossible. That's impossible. We'll try every other explanation in the book. Not that one. That's what happens when a person has an agenda. They can't see. Some explain that this is exactly what happened by Sarah Imenu. When Sarah was told that she's going to have a child at this old age of 90, the Pasuk says, She left. Like, like, like not believing. Like, what? After I dried out and withered, I'm an old lady, now I'm going to have children now. The Kirba, she didn't say anything. It was inside. She was laughing. Hashem tells Abraham, Why did Sarah live? What, she doesn't believe? She doesn't think that Hashem could do this? Where's her emunah? When Sarah was approached by Abraham, hey, you left. She says, but Sarah Lemor. She denied it. She says, Lot Sahakti. I didn't laugh. Ki yarea, says the Pasuk, because she was afraid. Simple reading sounds like she was afraid to tell Abraham that she left. She was embarrassed. She said, No, I didn't laugh. She denied it. But Yomer, he tells her, look, Kitzahat, you left. Hashem said you left. What is the meaning behind this? We know Sarah Imenu, Hazal tells us she didn't sin. She was a pure woman. She denied it? Okay, she left. So when he told her that God said you left, okay, so you got caught. What happens when you get caught? You get caught. She says, no, but Techahesh, I didn't left. They explain as follows that the left was something even Sarah didn't recognize. It was subconscious. Sometimes we know 
consciously what why we're saying, why we're thinking. Sometimes we don't even realize it. Denial is not only when a person says, okay, I'm going to deny the existence of the Creator because I want to do what I want. That's usually not how it works. Denial is subconscious. Without even you knowing why you think this way, you think this way. You couldn't even locate it yourself. Sarah, when she cried, it says, when she left, Bekirba. You know what Bekirba means? Bekirba means somewhere very deep in her conscience or subconscious. She's laughing. She's like, come on, it's not real. She didn't know that. That's why it says, It's not true. I didn't laugh. Why? Kiarea. Kiarea means because she considered herself a God-fearing person. A God-fearing person like me would doubt if Hashem could give me a child. She viewed herself as a God-fearing person. That's why she says, no way, I could live at that. I live? No way. But Abraham says, you did. You may not realize that you did, but you did. That's why it's so challenging. You know how challenging this is? Listen to this Gemara. The Gemara says in Masechet Sanhedrin, it's hard to believe this, but that's what it says. Halakha says, the Gemara says, that a Melech and a Kohen Gadol, neither one of these guys, Melech, Kohen Gadol, neither one of them, are allowed to sit in on a decision of the Beddin when they're thinking to add an extra month to the year. You know, you know this year, actually, Shana Me'oberet. We have a 13th month year. We add an extra month. We need to do this every so often to make sure the calendar stays where Pesach is in the spring and so on. Now today we have a set calendar. In those days, they would do it year by year. They would decide based on whatever decision-making facts they need to go through. And a bed dean would sit down and they would decide if we're going to add an extra month to the year. Good. Says the Gemara, a king of Am Yisrael cannot be involved in that decision. He can't sit in the bed. He could be the Gadol of Israel. Cannot, David Amelech can't sit there. The Kohen Gadol cannot sit in that bed. He could be the biggest Talmud Hacha. Cannot be there. He could be in bed, but not for this decision. This one. They can't be involved. Says the Gemara, why not? Why can't a king decide to add a month to the year? Says the Gemara, Mishum Aspanya. What is Aspanya? She explains, because the king has an army, he has people that work for him. He has a payroll. The government has a payroll. And the king pays them by the year. So he would love that they should add another month to the year. That means he has a month extra of people working for him for free. So therefore, he cannot be involved in this decision because he has an agenda. Hard to believe that he's going to add an entire month 
to the calendar for the entire Jewish people because he needs to save a few dollars or to get away with a few dollars of money. Now, that one may be a little bit believable, but the next one is impossible to believe. Says the Gemara, what about a Kohen Gadol? Why can't he be involved? What's his issue? What's his agenda? Says the Gemara, Mishum Tzina. Tzina means because of the cold. What does that mean? Because of the cold. It means like this. On Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol needs to go in the Mikveh a number of times. As we read in the Avodah of Yom Kippur, he has to do five times Tevilah in the Mikveh. Naturally, the later it is in the year, the colder it is. So he's not going to want to make another month in the year. Because that would make his water... Now, by the way, this is not like January time. In Israel, another month after October is not a big deal. If you're in October and you're dipping in the mikveh, it's still pretty warm out. But there's a little bit of extra coldness out there. And for that little five times on Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, he's going to make a decision for the Jewish people that we can't add a month, even though he knows that we should add a month. We're not going to do it. What is he worried about? He's worrying about dipping in cold, a little colder water on Yom Kippur. That's how far an agenda plays a role. Again, if you ask the Kohen Gadol, you think you have that agenda? Of course not. You would never come into that. But it could be there without him realizing. This is the story of Emunah. The story of Emunah is one has to be careful not to allow their agendas. And if you become more aware of it, you start to realize it, how much of our decision-making and other people as well come from an agenda. How many things we do from something that was already pre, pre-planned in part of us. You know, there's a famous, famous story about the bed of Sedom. I don't know if you ever heard of this Midrash. Very interesting Midrash. If you heard this Midrash, you'd say, come on, this is real. The Midrash says that the people of Sedom, they didn't want any visitors. They had a very wealthy country. They didn't want anyone to come in and settle and share their wealth. I can understand that. They didn't want any, they had no hachnasat orhim in that place. They didn't want people to come. No hotels, nothing. Just stay out. We're doing good. We don't need you. But they had one guest house in Sedom. They did. And if you would ask the Sedom government, so do you have orhim? Do you have guests? Of course. We have a whole building just for guests. Really, for free. Wow. What kindness. Hazal tell us when they came to make the bed. So they made all the beds the same size. They don't want to go manufacture now. 
size dependent on each person, some tall people, some short people. They made one bed for every, all for all people. They decided that if a person would come in and their body is too long, they just cut their feet. It's no big deal. They'll fit right in. And if they see the person is too small for the bed, it looks a little like, come on, it's, I, can't, I can't sit in the bed. They stretch his leg. They take him and they stretch him out. Now you read this Midrash and say, come on, what, what is this? Is this, is this for real? Well, let me tell you the message of this Midrash. And it's very applicable to all of us. Because we kind of do the same thing. You see, the people of Sodom wanted to do Hesed their way. That was the bet. What actually the person needed or not needed, what's the truth or not, it's irrelevant, will make them fit in the bed. My bed is not changing. This is the size of the bed. I will cut or expand the guest as I need to fit my bed. Not about you, it's about me. I want, I want to do hesed. Listen, I don't want to be known as a person who doesn't do hesed. God forbid, I do hesed. But I'm going to do it the way I like it. And that's what we do constantly. We have a bed. Listen, we come to a class. Right? We come to a class to learn. Before we come to the class, our bed is made up already. We come and say, listen, this is the bed. This is what we do. And this is what we don't do. Let me tell you, Rabbi, this is who I am. I do A, I do B, I don't do C. Just, I'm telling you, this is the bed. This is what I do. Okay, everybody came through the doors this morning, this afternoon, this is exactly what you came in with. You came in already with your bed all made up. Now, all of a sudden, you're sitting in the class, and you're hearing something, it's a little too tall for the bed. It's a little too tall for this. It's not, my bed doesn't fit that. So what do you do? You take it, cut it. Okay, I'll take the part that could fit my bed. My bed's not changing, you understand? This is my bed. And if it's a little too short, I'll stretch it out a little bit. We do this all day long. We have our beds in what we think, not only in religion, in anything. We have our beds. We have our mind made up. This is what we are. This is what we do. That's what we're used to. This is my habit. That's what I like, or I think I like. And then everything somehow will fit in my bed. This is the story of Sidon. A people with an agenda who already make up their beds. And because of that, you can't influence them. You can't make a difference in who they are because they're already finished as they come in. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu, at the end of his life, it's an amazing thing, at the end of his life, Moshe Rabbeinu was given a eulogy by the creator of the world. That's a beauty. Imagine Hashem himself eulogizes Moshe Rabbein. In a few words, he gives a eulogy. And he starts to like, you know, when you give a eulogy, you want to go one, and higher, and higher, and higher. And then we get to the last pasuk in the Torah. The last pasuk in the Torah is the highest level of eulogy for Moshe Rabbeinu comes the Torah and says, 
ולא קם נביא עוד בישראל כמשה, no, נביא, no prophet ever, ever, not before, not after, is going to be like משה רבנו. Hashem spoke to him face to face. לכל האותות, he did the great signs, לכל המופתים, all the great mirrors, the wonders he did. Last pasuk now. ולכל היד החזקה. Oh, that powerful yad, that powerful hand of, or arm of Moshe Rabbeinu. Which arm? What, what is he referring to? No, no. Says Rashi, שקיבל את התורה בלוחות בידיו. He brought down the luchot with his arms. He was hugging the luchot, carrying them. לכל, that's a, it's a great accomplishment. He struggled, by the way, to get the Torah. He had to fight with the angels, all types of things going on. Fight, they didn't just hand it to him. Good. Not item. That's the miracles in the desert, as she says. And what's the last eulogy in the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu? The last few words. Asher asa Moshe. And that which Moshe did, le'ayne kol Yisrael. There was something he did in front of everyone's eyes. That was his greatest achievement. His greatest achievement. What's Moshe's greatest achievement? Come and Rashid says it. You know what his greatest achievement was? He broke the Luhat. When he came in Har Sinai, he saw the Egel, he saw the golden calf, he took the Luhat, and he broke them. By the way, he broke them not knowing he's going to get another one. That's it. He broke the Luhat, meaning he said, here's the Torah, die, gone. His greatest achievement. Why is that his greatest achievement? I'm going to tell you why. Because someone who's not willing to break the luchot for the truth, you can't trust his luchot even when he brings them to you. Moshe Rabbeinu, he worked his whole life, basically, to get to this point. The whole creation is waiting for this point. The Torah should be given to Am Yisrael. He's fighting with the end. The man hasn't eaten 40 days and 40 nights. He's finally here. He brought the Torah down to the Jewish people. The entire story of Mitzrayim was to get to this moment. This is the moment. And now he has the Torah in his hands. And he sees that's not the right thing. He cannot bring the Torah. I'm not going to go into why. What was his calculation? His calculation was this is not the way. But Moshe Rabbeinu, you're invested in the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu, you did so much. To bring this Torah, you were set. You know how much you put into this, and you're gonna throw it away in a minute. Moshe Rabbeinu was pure and honest enough to take the Torah and to throw it. That was his agenda. His agenda was the Torah. He's the Moshe Rabbeinu that brought us the Torah. He didn't know that he would be given another chance. This was his moment in history, and he was throwing it all out. Gone. There might be another Moshe Rabbeinu somewhere down the line. Not him. How could you do that, Moshe? Answer is that Moshe was pure. Moshe was a person with no agenda. That is the greatest eulogy you can give a human being. And it's the greatest praise that you can give a person. And it's the greatest accomplishment that we can reach. That we can say, we are pure of agenda. We're not agenda-based people. We decide based on reality. We take off the yogurt glasses and we see things clear. How does a person do that? 
I'll just tell you three things very quickly. Number one, you got to learn Musar. You got to go to classes. You got to read books. Mesilat Yesharim, Havot Levavot, or Chotzadikim. Books that come out on the personalities of great people. You have to be constantly reading Musar. Because if you don't learn, and you don't go to class, and you don't educate yourself, you can find yourself so far gone in your agenda that you wouldn't even know how to find yourself back. You have to constantly remind yourself of what is true. Number two, as it says in Perkei Avot, lecha rav. You have to have a mentor. You have to have a rabbi. You have to have somebody that you follow. Someone that if he tells you jump, you jump a hundred feet. If he tells you get down, you get down. You need to have you need to have someone above you. Because without anyone above you, nobody will ever tell you what to do. People could see you jumping off the cliff of life and they won't even say anything. Because you don't listen anyway. And they're not going to volunteer. Who wants to tell people if they're doing something wrong? They know the other person will get offended. The other person will start getting angry. They'll start shooting back things at you. And say, oh, what about you? You think you're such a sadiq? You think you're so great? And the guy, who wants to do that? Nobody's giving you real rebuke. You may go to a class and they'll generally talk about things. But is anyone going to come up to you and say, hey, listen. You're doing this wrong. You're going the wrong way about this. I'm telling you, don't do it. Very few people will do that. And sometimes when they do, they have their own agenda. So therefore, you got to be careful. Means have a committed person in your life that you could tell them, when you see that I'm doing something wrong, tell me. You're my mentor. You're my rabbi. You tell me. If you think I'm doing the wrong thing, I want you to tell me. I'm going to listen. I want to hear it. That's number two. Number three, have a friend that you can say, you have. You don't need a hundred, you need one. One haber that you talk to, that you look up to, that you share with, that you can also make that type of interaction we're together. Haber means we're connected. Means we care for each other. Means we look out for each other. Means if I have to break the luhot, will you tell me? You'll tell me if I have to break the luhot? That's a good friend. Will you tell me if I have to do this? If I have to change my bed, you'll tell me? Good. That's the kind of friend that I'm looking for. That's the, th- that's the three pieces of advice I have for you. You have to constantly be learning. You have to have Musa. You have to have a rabbi, a mentor, someone above you. And you have to have a haber. You have to have someone like you, together in life, that's going to constantly remind you, hey, that was agenda. How many times in your life have you thought that something was so clear and someone tells you, no, no, you shouldn't do that. They're not smarter than you. They just have no agenda. Emunah is natural. Emunah is something that Hashem gave us, like our oxygen. We don't even need to work for it. We don't need to struggle for it. It's natural by us. But we need to have clear glasses. Shohad, bribery, 
will ruin our ability to see what's so clear. Now, if somebody tells me, but don't I have to learn about Emunah? Yes. You have, you have to learn Emunah. You know why? Because the waves of Shohan are so big. So you need to constantly be reminding yourself what the truth is, what the emet is. But Emunah is natural for all of us. With it, Be'ezrat Hashem, we have a tremendous life of Simcha that we are on our way to getting Be'ezrat Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Amen. Amen. Thank you.